This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Welcome to a very special episode of the podcast. I am very excited for this episode. Dad, it's a very special episode because it is our 100th episode of the podcast. Welcome for the 100th time. Wow, that went quick. Um, I'm pretty excited as well. I'm not so excited about our topic, to be honest, but <laughs> but it's it's been a great journey and I really hope everybody out there has got some value out of uh, what we've been trying to uh, get across to the listeners and it's been really enjoyable talking. So for this episode, we're doing something that I'm personally really, really excited about and uh, you've said that you're not uh, and that's we're going to tell the story of Jared Donnelly and the listeners need to know, Dad, that you uh, hate talking about yourself. Uh, I've had to push you a bit on, on the podcast to talk about yourself through a lot of the episodes um, and that's quite simply because, yeah, it's, it's not about you, you're trying to help other people. Um, but you will tell a story on this show or you'll tell a story to our athletes uh, when you know what's going to benefit them, when you know what's going to help them, uh, because you've experienced something uh, and by hearing the story, it might be a lesson that helped them improve. And so that's the aim of today. And so today you've agreed to go through your story and your career, uh, and it is an epic story with some truly amazing lessons in it. And whenever I ask you about it, I still learn new things because there's just so much to uncover. Uh, and at the start of every podcast, I say, here is your host, Australian Ironman champion, Jared Donnelly. And now we're finally going to hear the details of that story uh, in depth of how you achieved that amazing feat and more. Uh, so we've interviewed some fantastic guests so far on the podcast, some very high caliber athletes and high caliber people in the industry. Uh, and now it's my chance to interview you. Uh, so how does it feel being on the other side and being the guest on the show? Uh yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see how this goes, to be honest. Um, when you were mentioning about my journey, it, it kind of brought goosebumps to me just thinking about some of the things along the journey already. So I don't know how I'm going to go with this, but, uh, but really, as you said, the reason why you want to tell a story is because I made so many mistakes along that journey and I want to shortcut that for everybody. I want to let them understand what I did wrong and what I did right and don't do the things I did wrong. And I did plenty of them, but I was experimenting all the time. Um, so so it's re- I suppose it's going to be valuable for people to, to hear that, you know, it's just not always success. It, you have so many poor results that you learn from that, that I think that's the important part about that's what I'm going to focus on today. One of the major principles which we'll get into is execution. And there is a big reason why execution is one of your most founding principles in coaching and that's because on the biggest stage you learned a hard lesson about execution and that'll come towards the end of the story but let's get into it and let's take it right back to 1981, 82 and you started doing what you call Mickey Mouse triathlons. A really good mate of mine and we were both playing footy together said have you seen this thing on telly the Hawaii thing and I know many people have have talked about this in their in their stories and yeah I had seen it it was like a freak show on telly and they turn it into a freak show you know look at these idiots doing you know a whole day's worth of activity and whoever crawled across the line you know was the winner so 
that got the interest of a lot of people. And um, there was a you know an event that happened uh, in Melbourne called the Nautilus Triathlon back in 1981. It started in Frankston and finished at the city square. And my mate said, "Come on, let's do it." And I didn't even have a bike, so um, I'd done no training. Uh, I hadn't swam, ran, or ridden competitively competitively for years. Yeah, I just played you know team sport. And really loved it. Really loved being a part of uh, team sport. So, so I agreed to line up for this race, and uh, and that was kind of the, the start of the journey. And I just thought it was a fantastic experience. Uh, the whole day was was action packed from me borrowing a bike from one of the kids at school, um, coming out of the water, getting on the wrong bike, riding ten k down the road, thinking this bike seems too big, even though. <laughs> I'm not sure, but anyway, clearly it was the wrong bike. Rode back to the start, <laughs> changed bikes. Thank God the guy whose bike I was on wasn't out of the swim yet. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Got the bike that was, there's a blue one. It was the same as what I was riding. And uh, I think it was a Jatan. And jumped on that and had a much more enjoyable experience on the way to Elwood. And there was no marshals at any traffic lights. So you just had to stop at the traffic lights. And so, so it, was, it was clearly... Yeah. Early days, yep. um, and then ran from Elwood to the city on some journey that was through the back streets, and I don't know, people just made their way to the city somehow, <laughs> and and uh, there were some really good guys winning uh, who seemed to be right across this sport, yeah. and I was not one of those good guys. You weren't you weren't a hack athlete. You it was your first time doing a triathlon. I was a hack triathlete. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. But, but I rated myself as a sportsman, so I thought, well. I'll have a go at this. And it was a good lesson in, in so many things about preparation and, and planning. And, you know, I did no preparation. I had no planning. Um, pretty much had no idea what I was doing, but, but still enjoyed the journey. And I really understand now what triathletes who are new to the sport, um, the excitement and exhilaration they feel, no matter how bad an experience it is, it's still pretty fun um, when you finish to to know you've gone through three different sports and the ups and downs of the day and the things that happen to you, the amazing things that happen to you and, the, you know, the people you, you, you know, you're swimming next to, bumping heads and the people you're on the bike with chasing each other and then, yeah, it was, it was a lot of positives even though there was plenty of negatives but uh, that, that kind of, that was it. I just thought, oh, I'm going to see what, what I can do in this. And uh, You were one of those triathletes that got addicted straight away. Yeah, with a poor performance. Yeah. 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 I think it either you either go, that's crap, I'm not doing that ever again, or um, my, my mindset was, you know, I can do better than that, so let's see what I can do next time. And that was my point just then. You weren't a hack athlete. You were, you were a talented athlete from when you were a kid. You won state titles, um, went to nationals, um, won national title as a 12-year-old. Um, so you, you had that fitness in you. You were always a good runner. But as you said, you once you got older, you switched more to team sports and enjoyed the team sports a lot more. Yeah, definitely. And I'd, I'd grown up being uh, really into cross country and athletics track. Um, and, you know, my dad was a really great coach and we had a fantastic running group as 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 year olds down in Warrigal. Um, before my dad was coach, we had uh, Jeff Watt, who was uh, a local optometrist, uh, who happens to be the father of Kathy Watt, the Olympic gold medalist from Barcelona 1992 in the road race. So he knew a thing about uh, coaching um, and he had some good pedigree, obviously, with his daughter being an Olympic champion, the first Australian to ever win 
uh, a road race at the Olympics, which is, you know, incredible. Um, he'd run Boston Marathon, Chicago's. This is in the 1960s and 70s. So to have him mentoring us and my dad learning all of the things that he knew already about interval training, who would ever, you know, it seems common now, but in the early 60s and 70s, there was very few people doing that Intervals. type of training. Um, you know, fartlek was a bit of a word and, you know, Bannister was breaking the, the, the four-minute mile and uh, Ron Clark and, and those guys, Herb Elliott, you know, in the 60s were kind of dominating athletics uh, in Australia and the world. And, but he was learning, he just used to, you know, there was no internet to, to find mm. information. You had to get books and mm. read things in, mm-hmm. in newspapers and, and talk to people. Mm. Um, and he was great at that. Um, Jeff White was ahead of his time and he taught my dad so many good things and they used to have hours of discussions at night when they'd come over to our place and discuss training and and yeah, it was uh, it was kind of interesting because you're all caught up in that um, even as a 10 or 11, 12 year old I can't believe how determined and motivated I was to have success and and we were doing training sessions as 12 year olds like on a Monday night, I can still rattle off the sessions. We did, when we talked to Montegetti on the podcast, he talked about doing the same sessions for 25 years. Well, that's what we did for, since I was eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And it only took till, you know, when I was 10 or 11 and 12, where on Mondays we'd do an 800, then a 600, then three 400s, then three 200s. And they were all pretty fast. I can remember running the 400s in 70, 71 as a 10 year old. Mm. A 111, 112 on a grass track that he'd moan for us. In bare feet. In bare feet. And, and Wednesdays were six 400s and Thursdays was eight 200s. That was our program. And then we'd race on Saturday and then Sunday we'd go for a long run in, in the hills as a 10-year-old. And I based my whole running coaching on a lot of those principles. It's funny that 50 years later, it's still yep. the same principles. Yep. And I think we train probably too hard. Yeah. Um, a Wednesday, Thursday track session in a row. Yeah, and Monday was, you know, after a Sunday and Saturday race, it was, but we were, we were the fittest guys in Australia and no one was training like that. If you look at Olympic um, 800 meter runner at the moment, the sessions aren't too dissimilar. They're still doing 800, yes. 600, three 200s. Yes, oh. plus they're doing a uh, run in the morning, mm. you know, an easy run in the morning, mm. uh, five days a week. It's funny you bring that point up because I want to bring this out early and this is absolutely unbelievable. If you're, not, if you're listening to just the audio, you won't see this, but it's worth jumping on our YouTube and checking out the footage of this. And you pulled out this, um, it's an old lecture pad book. It's dated 80, 1986. And it is uh, every single session of every single week of your um, pro career. You know, and we'll get into your pro career soon, but um, we can flick through this book and we were flicking through it earlier. And there is still eight by 400s, you know, and so this is in, in the sixties, you're doing the intervals with the 400 sessions. And I'm 28 here. And yeah, 20 years later, yep. you're doing the same sessions. And then yep. 15 years later, we were doing the same sessions as kids. Yep. And now uh, in 2021, Olympic athletes are still doing these types of sessions. It's uh, remarkable because in that era, like you said, there was in the fifties, Roger Bannister and John Landy broke the four minute mile for the first time. And they were the first ones that were experimenting with Try, what, what do they need to do to run four laps under 60 seconds? And uh, they were doing all sorts of tests. And they mm. were doing all sorts of sessions where they would try and run under 60 as many times as they could with a break. And, they, and mm. they, they would shorten that break. You know, it was really experimental time. And then 
the Nike story, you know, worldwide at the same time you're doing this as a 10 year old, Nike is starting to develop in the 60s and 70s mm. uh, worldwide. And you even, Nike was previously Tiger. You even got yourself a pair of Tigers. Well, and, actually, Asics was Tiger. Okay. Yep. So Tiger used to be Asics and now it's Asics. Yeah. Okay. Yep. yep. I thought, I thought I might have that story wrong. Yep. Um, but regardless, yep. you know, that experimentation worldwide was all happening where, um, Nike was being developed and mm. uh, their sort of athletes were doing the same sort of experimenting and uh, their famous coach, Coach um, Bauman, um, which is now there's the Nike Bauman mm. uh, headquarters uh, in America. Prefontaine. And yeah, yeah. He will Bauman coach mm. Prefontaine and the, mm. they were experimenting with all these types of sessions. And then uh, in Australia, there was the coach. Um, uh, Percy Serity. Yeah. And who, New Zealand had Arthur Lydiard, who's uh, um, our guest last week was taking a lot of his um, training sessions from the 70s. Yes, and- yes, right, from Ryan Bolton, yes. Yep. Um, and so this is all happening worldwide where mm. similar style sessions are coming and you're hearing hearsay, it's exactly what you're saying. It's mm. just remarkable to me that, um, mm. and then we look at this book and so you can see on camera, I'm just going to show the camera here, this book, but it's got you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, week eight. Um, what did you do in the morning? Um, the exact type of session, you know, you've got four by 400 here with you know, uh, you've got your swim sessions, your bike sessions. It's absolutely incredible. We'll get into this book a little bit later, but it's just such a funny point, isn't it? That you were doing these sessions. Um, and so then when you come back to the 80s and you start doing triathlon, you know how to train like an athlete. And so when you decide that you like mm. triathlons, for the next three, four, five years, you start training a bit more and start taking it more seriously. Yeah, and, and grabbing all the experience that I had as a, as a young kid and, and just remembering the discussions that, that Jeff Potter and Dad had had about you know, what we should be doing now and how how to prepare for the season and and having your goals and what what times do you think you can do and and the the idea of having data and and you know I, why did I get create a journal like it's all handwritten and there's no computers for the those who are listening there was just no telephones no computers up, up until 1990 something 90 I don't know I can't remember 94 or something. And up until that stage, we, you know, everything was just learned from reading about it um, at a magazine or, or, or just historical books that had uh, someone had done biographies on the life of Herb Elliott and, and Percy Sarity's coaching, you know, remarkable hill repeat sessions on the sand dunes of Portsea. You know, that's legendary stuff. Mm. And Herb Elliott won the 1960 1500 metres by eight metres, you know. Just and retired, mm. but just ahead of his time, just had been coached brilliantly, had a massive engine, had, was a talented runner, um, you know, Olympic champion. And, and you know, they're examples of uh, just getting information, and we still do it now. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff that is relevant, you use, stuff that's not relevant, you discard and learn more. And, and that's, that's kind of a message that I want listeners to hear is, you know, I'm still learning about what works and I'm still experimenting with myself and, and reading and hearing other people's ideas and trying to implement them into programs on myself and, and knowing, you know, that this is a, a better version of version 45, now I'm at version 70. There's so many versions of, you know, you're just trying to keep ahead and, and give everybody the opportunity to be the best they can be. And it doesn't have to be winning Olympic gold and winning Australian titles. It's just being a better version of yourself and and that's where the planning and that's why that book is it to me it 
I think that is data personified. It's, it's me just writing in what I did. I made a plan of what my training week looked like, what my training month, what my training year. And, and there, here I am filling in the data. And we talk about that a lot in our podcast, post, post-analysis. And I was doing that for my training sessions before I had the luxury of sitting at a computer with a spreadsheet. You've got your races and you, you ride in your swim leg. How did you feel? What happened? Your, yep. your bike leg, how did you feel? What happened in your run leg? And you're just putting in your time because there's no more data available. That's you, right. But you wrote, I, I wrote, swam strong, lost concentration, yeah. finished off the pack. Yeah. That was my summary. Yeah. Ride well in the hills on the bike, was weak on the flat. Mm. I, you know, we just ran, read it in an entry ran, like that. Ran super. Yeah. You know, 112 for yeah. half marathon. I was like, finish the race off, you know. Really pleased. Yeah. And one of the things that stood out for me in the book is that you wrote down every single race and every single result. And through 83, 84, 85, you were doing every local club race. You started doing some interstate triathlons and your results were slowly getting better. You know, in the 81, 82, 83, you were doing local, Mm. um, what you say, pissy little club (laughs) triathlons and coming 10th and 12th. And then you start to come top five in those local ones. Then you start to come top five or six in bigger triathlons and uh by the time you hit 1986, you were, you were training really hard and performing well at most races you were entering. And you ran in the journal, it's so funny, you were doing one or two triathlons a year in the first few years and then you started ramping it up and then something changed in 84, 85 where you suddenly did 15 races throughout the year. Um, and then there was a turning point on your honeymoon mm. in 1986. So talk to us about that. Well, certainly getting to that turning point from, as you said, I was teaching full-time as a phys ed teacher at a, at a Catholic school in Melbourne at, at, at St. Bernard's in Essendon, which was unbelievably good opportunity. And I lived about, I don't know, 15K, 20K away, and the, and the traffic then wasn't that good. <laughs> but it's a nightmare compared to what, um, what it is not now is a nightmare compared yeah. to what it was then. But I just used to commute on the bike um, uh, as part of my training because I didn't have time to train because I was coaching the school cross-country boys most nights or I was coaching the swimming squad in the morning. So it was far easier for me just to commute on the bike and get my riding in and then swim with the guys and run with the guys. So I ended up pretty much doing three sessions a day and working as a phys ed teacher. I had a fantastic life. Mm. It, it was, how good is this? This is, you know, and teaching during the day was, was really good. I really enjoyed it. And, and so getting to that point of uh, starting to do a lot more races, getting fitter, um, concentrating on my training and and uh, and experimenting with a lot of the training sessions with the boys at the school to to get them and uh, you know the sessions. What do we do on the sessions? We did lots of six by fours and eight by two hundreds and and seeing how they coped with that volume and um, learning that they couldn't quite cope with it because they didn't have the background mm-hmm. uh, fitness and so a lot of them got injured early. It was too much, too much intensity. So really learning, unfortunately, by making mistakes. Um, Which is a great point because we haven't released this podcast yet, but we just interviewed the Norwegian head triathlon coach, one of the top triathlon coaches in the world at the moment because of the success of the Norwegian athletes. And we were shocked to hear him say on the podcast, almost identical to what you just said just then, with his athletes, he said, oh, I actually wasn't that good at the start. I was very much mm. experimenting. My athletes got injured. This mm. is with world-class athletes. and. It is just a constant learning process no matter what level you get to. Yeah, and so by the time I'd done that for three or four years, I, I was really into it, like in a big way, and it got to a point where the teaching bit was, was getting in the way a bit, <laughs> you know. Um, I couldn't fit in enough training 
Um, and I was trying to build relationships with with bikes and bike races and bike shops and um, so I was pretty full on. Trying to get some sponsorship. Yeah, yeah, trying to get some assistance and I could see if I wanted to be serious at this, I had to have the right equipment. I had no equipment. I, I just had a clunker of a bike and um, but I found some really good people who helped and um, Peter Lamont from Action Cycles, you know, what a helpful guy, you know, just, yeah, what do you need? You know, I'll help you. Um, and he came up with this ridiculous bike that was a, a normal back wheel and a, a small front wheel. And I think Francesco Moser rode it in a time trial to hold the world record in uh, the hour in the velodrome. And he rode a similar bike and Peter Lamont made this bike for me. And I rode it in the Hawaii Loves You Triathlon in, uh, in Kauai. Um, and you couldn't turn because the wheel hit your foot. Um, it, it was just a weird bike, but it was state of the art. And that's how involved he was. So you got people around you. Surround your people, yourself with people who are, who are on the journey with you. And, mm-hmm. and that, that was good. And so by the time I, I eventually got married, um, I was determined that there was, there, you know, I, I had a few goals in mind, but I needed to be on board with your mum to say, this is what I want to do. Um, as soon as we got married, I said, on my honeymoon, I had lots of time to think because we were, you know, away from school, away from training, not doing anything but relaxing and enjoying ourselves and lots of time to think. And it was there I just thought, you know what, I just want to have a crack at this. I want to have a crack at seeing how far I can go. And I said to her, I don't know how we can do this, but can I do this full time? And we talked about it for the whole time we were away and she said, absolutely. And she was a phys ed teacher, ironically, as well. Um, we went through school together and uh, we both went to the same uni together and so she had a really good job and um, and through that she was able to work full time. We didn't have any children. It was 1986 and, and I put my resignation in um, after a couple of good results and 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 th- that next year I turned full time. Mm, so you first uh, kind of really, you basically made the decision on the honeymoon but you didn't fully commit yet. Um, but talk to me about, because um, you knew you had talent and that thing inside you saying, um, I, I want to give this a crack full time and see what I can do. And you've spoken to me about having four goals in your life and how this all kind of came together in that year. It's so true. And growing up, one of my biggest ambitions was to be a professional sportsman. And I just didn't care what sport. I wanted to be a professional soccer player. I, I played state level. I wanted to be a footballer. I played another good level. Um, but in the team sports, I just felt let down a lot of the time by my teammates. Even though I loved the team environment, I wanted to be in a sport where I was responsible and only me. And, and so I thought, I still want this ambition to be a professional footballer or a soccer player or a cricket player, but I was kind of being held back. And so I thought, well, if you're su- such a hero, Go and do it as an individual. Mm. Go back and be a running, you know, a track runner or, but the triathlon kind of thing, you know, this was it. I thought this is the sport that I think I can fulfill that goal of being a professional and see how long I can be. So my ultimate goal was uh, as a phys ed teacher growing, I just wanted to play sport. That's why I became a phys ed teacher. I was, anything to do with, you know, marbles <laughs> where, where there was competition. <laughs> I wanted to be involved. And when I was at uni, we did gymnastics, we did trampolining, we did 
sports that I'd never, ever seen because we had no phys ed when I grew up um, at school. We had sport, which was play footy in winter and you play cricket in summer. That was at my school. So I never knew what phys ed was and I heard that there was a course where you could actually be a phys ed teacher. thought that's what I want to do because I can just play sport. And mm-hmm. through uni, I just played sport for four years and there was some, some theory stuff there that I didn't have much interest in. But I should have taken a bit more interest in. Yeah. But, um, but certainly, uh, you know, that was a, such an enjoyable part of uh, my early, early days. And so the goal of being a full-time at something yeah. um, was now firmly entrenched in my head. This is my opportunity. And, to be a professional athlete. Yeah, and uh, the risk-reward was huge. Um, here I am asking my new wife if I can not work full-time and just have a, you know, have a muck around with <laughs> being a professional athlete. And, and we both were on board with it. Um, we decided that if I could do well for the rest of the year, then next year we would start it. And so the events came for the rest of the year and that's when I started to actually do okay. And then... What were the other three goals before we get into those races? Um, I wanted to... I always wanted to represent the green and gold. I always wanted to represent Australia. And whether that was on the Aths track or, you know, there wasn't much opportunity as a footballer, but as a cricketer, I thought I could be a test cricketer. That's how ambitious I was. But anything to do with representing my country is, it, it was a really big drive for me. Um, so anything to do with national championships was, you know, and, and being able to represent your country in Olympics or Commonwealth Games, I just thought that's a goal that I'd, that I would like to tick off. And I'm picking goals that are pretty bloody massive here. <laughs> I want to be a full-time professional athlete and I want to represent my country. So I'm not picking little, little things here. And, and I think that's what drives me with when my coaching is I really want people to think about what, what do they want to get out of the sport they're doing, whether they're cyclists or whether they're runners or whether they're triathletes or mountain bikers. What are you trying to achieve? You know, and being a better version of yourself is as big a goal as being a representative of your country. And that's the message I want to get across. There's no that's big, that's small. Everything you select is your big goal. And being a better version of yourself is massive because that takes commitment, planning, preparation, all the things that it takes to be an Olympian. And, you know, we've talked to many Olympians on this podcast and they all say the same thing. Um, you know, it's consistency, it's the willingness to, to put yourself out there and risk everything and put yourself on the line, pin a number on, and even if you're not racing, just try and consistently train to improve yourself. So, so that was the second big yep. goal, and I, I, thought agree, I, yeah. I thought I could trump that one by saying, I want to win a national title. I want to be an Australian champion at something. And so on that honeymoon, they're the three things that I started with and I added a fourth. So the three things was, uh, this is, if I'm going to do this, these are the three things that I want to tick the boxes of. And your mum, as you know, is on board with whatever crazy ideas I have. And she would never say to me, are you being a bit ambitious with that? You know, what happens if you don't achieve those three things? Will you be, you know, forever bitter and twisted? Mm. Um, she never said any of that stuff. It was like, if that's what your dream is, go for it. Mm-hmm. And the fourth thing was, I want to do this in my own time. 
So I don't want to have to stop because of some reason. I want to be able to do this. And when I'm finished, I'm finished. And, and of course, there were reasons why you have to finish. Um, but yeah, so that was the goal. There were the four things. Let's see how it unfolded. So that year you started uh, entering more races and performing well. And there is one particular race which changed everything. And that was you ended up going to Hawaii for the World Long Course Championships. Um, and I want to bring something else out again, another prop, uh, because we have this incredible article that I think um, one of our clients might have. Oh, no, actually, I think Gran kept this, didn't she? Yeah, she did. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this, the headline reads, and I'll show it on video, uh, but for those just listening, the headline reads, so you, you're, you're not quite a professional yet. I'm uh, still working at St. Bernard's. Yeah, yeah, and you've gone to this race to uh, test yourself against the world's best current triathletes, and you've, uh, you're really improving as an athlete. And This is 23rd November, it's dated 1986, uh, and the headline is Dark Horse Stuns Field. Jared Donnelly... Uh, recently left Australia with high hopes of finishing in the top 20 of the World Long Course Triathlon Championships in Hawaii. And there's a quote from you that says, I didn't expect to finish anywhere near the winners as I was basically just aiming for a place in the top 20. Uh, but you ended up coming fourth in that race. And there's a whole lot here. Um, you didn't know what to expect. Uh, it says here you're still sports master at St. Bernard's College, uh, which is in contrast restricting in how much training you can actually fit into one day. Um, so you set off on the beach uh, in hopes and with nervous tension um, and it goes through the race and it's uh, quite an incredible read to be honest. But uh, that, that probably cemented in your mind that uh, you, can, you can do this. I've got a preface though, George. It was, what date was that, October? 23rd, November. November. Okay, so most of the guys had done Hawaii <laughs> in October. So I picked a, a race that I knew there was probably not going to be such a good field uh, because they'd all competed. And mind you, Scott Molina was in the race. I think he won. Yeah. Um, who has won Kona. Yeah. Um, so, so I was, you know, I couldn't get to Kona that year in 1986. Um, I don't know what the reason was, but so I thought, what's the next biggest world race? Because Kona is a world Ironman. This is a world long course. So I thought, right, this is a race and I'll, I'll just see how I go. I, I had no... I rang the race organizer and said, you know, I've come somewhere in Australia. <laughs> I think I came second at the Endurathon, Australian Endurathon Championships. And so she gave me accommodation. So that was my first experience of, I had to fly over there and, and she gave me accommodation. I stayed with some other people where I met some really good people, shared accommodation and raced and, and was, was ecstatic with the result. I, I just never knew that the level I got to was, was, yeah, it was a real game changer for me and come home from that and it was, you know, exciting to say that, yep, this is, this is a chance for, for me ticking off some of these goals that I'd set myself and that was a real turning point, that race. And, um, you know, I look back on that and, and that gave me an unbelievable confidence that if I kept training and learning about how to get myself better, that I could do whatever I wanted in this sport, even though I hadn't won anything. Um, it was just a confidence booster for me, and I thought I belonged. So you came home and quit your job. Yeah, I I resigned and um, taught. You know, it was November, so just finished off the year and resigned and um, and started my career in you know from day one as as a professional and um, 
Yeah, it was a really exciting period and uh, it was, you know, as you would expect, you know, what races can I do? Can I do 100 races in two weeks? Can I train the house down? <laughs> made, I made 100 mistakes in the first two years of, you know, the first six months, first three months, you know, everybody's telling me all the, I got all the advice from all, um, Ruben Chapman's came out to, he was in that race as well and he was a really good Hawaiian athlete. He came to Came to Australia and stayed in Melbourne, and uh, and Brian Upton was the guy who let him stay. At his, uh, he, it was the the pub in um, Mount Waverley on the corner there, across the road from the Glen. Can't remember the name of the club, but but Ruben came out. and He was a professional. He was full time, and so which I trained with him. Boy, did I! I was on a steep learning curve, and he was just laughing at the stuff I was doing. He said, "You're t- training too hard," because I was still doing my ath training. Um, you know, still doing the the intervals not doing any endurance. I was competing in an endurance sport. You know, I was, I was doing all this hard stuff. Um, hard stuff's good, mm. but not every session. And that, was a, that took a long time. And now it's easy for me to say now, you know, you're training too hard. And people go, no, no, I want to get better. And that's how I was. Mm. I wanted to get better. I want to get better quick. Mm. I want to get better now. Um, and I don't have four years. I have to do it now. Mm. And I didn't have the base. And I got really good at getting the base really quickly. And one of the decisions we made, because uh, um, your mum was teaching at Berwick and I was teaching at Essendon and we lived in Box Hill, which is halfway between. So it's a fair distance between the two jobs. Um, so now I wasn't teaching at St. Bernard's um, and I was free to live anywhere. And we both decided that we needed to go to the Dandenongs to train. And it was very close to Berwick. It was literally a 15-minute drive for her school, and I could live anywhere. And I chose the Danny Nongs because it had the famous Sherbrooke Forest where Ron Clark used to train, um, uh, Chris Wardlaw, you know, in his heyday, was a really good runner before he coached Monaghetti. This is, you know, um, in that era. So for those that don't know, the Danny Nongs is this hilly region which uh, we still live now, uh, you know, the family still lives, and uh, it's 40 kilometres east of Melbourne, uh, and it's... Yep the closest kind of real good hilly mountain range. Yeah, but it's nothing like Boulder, Colorado or... It's, it's what, 600 metres. Yes, it's the maximum yeah, yeah, to, it's to Alinda. But it's the hills and the, the strength that, that I knew was the difference between um, pretty much winning and losing. And, and that's what I lacked. I lacked strength. I had speed to burn. I was a really good 800 metre runner. Um, and it was something that I, I just couldn't sustain it. Um, I'd run well, you know, for a half, half marathon or even, you know, 10 Ks and 15 Ks. But when it came to the marathon, I just faded badly. And so that was an easy no brainer. We have to move to where I can train at Sherbrooke Forest, um, and get the leg strength that I, you know, really needed so that the back half of these runs, I could sustain the pace I was starting with. And, you know, all the athletes I coach will laugh because, you know, starting strong and finishing and fading is the thing that, you know, that, you know, I've said for fuck's sake so many times to people, you know, what were you thinking? And it's exactly what I was doing. But it was because I wasn't fit enough. Um, the guys now are making the mistake. They're fit enough, but they're still picking the wrong starting number. Um, so, so that was, you know, that was a game changer. And within, within a year, well, within six months, I was, you know, I was running the house down. Um, without doing the hard flat-out intervals that I used to do. I was still doing, you know, one interval session a week, but 
you know, two hill repeats, you know, one hill repeat and one long endurance run. And, you know, that is still the bread and butter of, of what I, I know works. And we've got examples, even the last three years of people trying to run too fast and then getting them to run strong in the hills. Um, and they're doing PBs without doing any intervals and not getting injured. Um, it's, it's an unbelievable, um, experience you have to go through yourself before you before you can manage to, to, to help other people. So talk to me about your mindset and uh, how you were coping over that two-year period. You were really ha- changing your training based on uh, everyone you were learning from. You said, mentioned that one guy that told you, you know, you needed to train a bit easier, but it wasn't just him. There was a lot of effort. You were going to races, learning from people, training with different squads. I was like the super sponge. Uh, you know, I had all my own theories, but these guys were beating me. So I wanted to know why. And what was I doing wrong? That because I, you know, without being too boastful, I really rated myself. Yet I wasn't winning everything, and and for me that was a little bit hard to take. So I set about finding out what everybody else was doing, and and just picking and choosing the the components that I thought were useful, and getting rid of stuff that I thought was a waste of time. And so I. I joined groups uh, for running, I joined groups for swimming, I joined groups for riding, and I started by doing all their sessions and realized pretty quickly there was so much irrelevant stuff happening, and then just picked the one session with each group that I thought was going to help me, push me the day that I wanted to train hard, I joined those groups, and they were smashing me in, in most sessions, um, and it, you know, it was quite frustrating and um, you know, just really had to hold my nerve and back myself that it will take time and I can't expect it to happen. You know, I've, I've been really seriously doing it for since 84, so I should be doing better than I am, you know, considering I'd really been serious for quite a long time, but mm. not, you know, when you, when you go professionally full-time, it's not a great difference from what I was doing before, except I had more period to rest uh, in between my sessions rather than working. Um, so. I'd, more time on my hands and I could do a lot more of the one percenters with uh, stretching and strength and conditioning and sleep, having naps during the day, eating really well. Um, so all those things started to slowly help me um, uh, perform in training better and, and, but really getting information from other people, understanding, asking questions and learning um, and, uh, and being, uh, leaving my ego at home. And act, you know, just pretending I know nothing, and and I'm going to learn as much as I can. And and I think that was the ch- turning point for me was, you know, stop acting like you know everything, um, and and learn from people who are better than you. So 1987, you go through that year, and you would you had some good results. Um, were you where were you sitting in comparative to the Australian field in all these races? Unheard of. Yep. Just most people. You know, we're winning, same people were winning a lot of the time. First, second and third, fourth didn't change much. Fifth, and the depth started to grow in Australian triathlon because it became very popular. And I was sort of getting shunted further down. Um, couldn't work out what races suited me, really. And that was a, a bit of a, you know, because I didn't have the endurance at the start. And then that, that year of being in Belgrave, um, you know, it took, it took the whole year before I started to really develop my running skills. And I, as I said, I, I rated myself as a runner, yet I wasn't 
really running well in triathlon, um, which proves that, you know, it's a three-sport event. It's not just running. Um, so, so I really, riding around the hills of the Dandenongs on the bike, you know, and remember the gearing and the steel bikes we had then. Like, I, my gearing was 53, um, I think we had a five-cog back, but it was, might have been a 13 straight block, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 or something. Trying to ride around the Danny Nongs with a 53, you know, 17 on some of the hills. I was zigzagging, <laughs> you know. I, I couldn't even get up some of the hills. And boy, did I become strong in the legs and become a really good bike rider over a, over a, a period of time. But it wasn't my strength. You know, I did swimming squad as a junior, so I was a competent swimmer, but I was not an elite swimmer. Um, and um, I'd been in a bike club since the early 80s, so... I knew how to bike race, but I didn't know how to time trial. Um, I had very good tactical understanding of bike racing, but I had no idea how to ride threshold. Mm. And so I wasn't strong enough either. I could I could do one and two minute efforts and with the best of them then recover. And because I was, as you know, from a runner, you know, slightest recovery on a bike and you're good to go again. Mm. But holding that sustained threshold was something I was very weak at. And, and so that's what I honed a lot of my training around was doing – you know, you've seen that diary. It's got, you know, four by 15 minute efforts threshold, mm. you know, just holding holding what I felt was going to be my race feeling because I had no, yeah. no power meter or <laughs> data or anything. Yeah. So it was just doing repeats of feel riding um, uh, and, and trying to measure my efforts, really practicing how to measure your efforts in training so that when it came race day, not overcooking it, which I did many times. but. Um, but boy, it was a real learning curve, and and by understanding how to train better, uh, the improvement started to happen. Uh, you know, slowly, but not quick enough for, for my mindset. But but certainly, my mindset was, how am I going to get better? Because I'm absolutely behind the eight ball here. There's guys who are way better than me. That same year, Japan Ironman, you. I got to Japan, which is a uh, to race against some of the world's best, um, and you had a great result there, which again was probably proof of yep. how far you were coming. And you came seventh, which was yeah. And look, I still wasn't competing that well in Australia. It showed you the talent and depth we had in Australia, um, and I, I was surrounding myself with really good people. And Peter Farmer, um, who actually his wife Judy Farmer, she had a, a clothing company called uh, Fancy Pants. And that's the kid I wore. Um, we became really good friends. He was, I think, about 10 years older than I was, a really quality triathlete and a thinker, attention to detail, was really serious about it, and he was my mentor. And again, surrounding myself with people who are just fantastic. And I suppose his, his advice, and I trained with him all the time, um, uh, you know, from, from early days, um, the, the long endurance sessions slowed me down. Uh, not trying to do, you know, three hours hard and then that's enough. Jared, you need to do five hours. You need to do six hours. Slow down. Get the strength in you. And stuff like that was invaluable. And, and you know, um, without those people around me, um, I, I think it would have taken a lot longer to get, get to where I wanted to, to be, I suppose. That same year, you went to Kona. You were lucky enough to get to race Kona. Yep. And I was about to say with Peter Farmer, we had a team called Team Australia and um, Peter Stevens, who was the chief editor of The Age at that time, um, he managed to get Carlton United Breweries to sponsor this Team Australia. 
And through this group, we got to race at Japan um, and we had the best athletes in Australia go in this team. Um, and it was brilliant to go on a team to, to Japan and, and Scott Tinley was there. Some of the legendary world-class athletes were there and to come in the top 10, it was another example of, you know, I'm, I'm doing well internationally. I'm doing as well as I am Australia as I am internationally. So um, that was a great, a great experience. And, and then going from there to Kona. Um, what was that like first time? Yeah. And, and I was quite sensible because I, I had the long-term plan of I'm going to do this race and learn. And Peter Farmer drummed that into me. He'd already done Kona before. And he said, it's, it's like nothing you'll ever experience again. You can do Ironmans anywhere you like, but this is, this is completely different. And I'd heard and seen on Wild World of Sports them running through the lava fields and the intense heat. And so you were just, you were so nervous going there. Um, and we trained all through winter in Melbourne to go to Kona in October. What a ridiculous preparation. We trained it really well, but we were freezing most of the time. By the time we got to Kona, we got there, you know, a week early thinking that was good. Um, and I, my goal was just to experience it the first year and, and then come back again to race it. Um, so so I, I was really pleased with I, I got through it. I got through it. Um, I shared some great experiences. And again, the Team Australia had a, a Foster's Team Australia and uh, that was some really exciting times. Met some great people, Greg Brown and and the like so and and ended up training with those guys um a little bit more closely from that point on and and from that point so japan and and, uh kona were two really good experiences that uh again gave me confidence that i was on the right track um and coming back it was entering the australian summer so we had trained the house down in winter so that summer was a real example of good preparation and then coming into you know december january february march april the form that we were in was was ex- outstanding. So, I mean, the result in Kona was not as relevant to you, but uh, you came 57th or something. Yes. And yep. you, there's a great photo crossing the line, I think, with one of your teammates. Rod Sodaro. And yep. You, yep. you guys hold each other's hands up because yep. it was just a fantastic feeling to yep. actually finish because you were so nervous about what yep. And run strong. Run mm-hmm. even, run strong, ride strong, and not, not just run controlled mm-hmm. with patience. Um, and do the whole race with patience of not trying to kill myself. And there were pe- plenty of people falling apart. That was the year Julie Moss crawled across the line. Um, the and famous video. Yeah. Of, you know, that got the headlines. The winners didn't get much headlines, but she got the headlines for – she was an absolute gun uh, triathlete. She, I think she won, Kona, but she pushed herself way beyond. Um, and, you know, that was, that was an eye-opener to me to see what, how far the human body could actually go. But – but it was a good, good, uh, good experience to go and do it. It set me up for. So at this point, how is the dream of becoming Australian champion going? Because yeah, it's pretty far away. What, what would yeah. you be ranked among? Tenth, twelfth, fifteenth? If I was lucky. Yeah. Yep. And yep. yeah, you had this dream, and you were starting to come into form. Yeah, and there was a bit of pressure on my. I put pressure on myself because here I am. I've had a whole year of no work, and there's people. People around you going, how's it going? Mm. Um, you know, doesn't seem like much has changed. So I felt a little bit of that. Um, it wasn't intentional, but that, it's always there, perceived. Um, but I just stuck to, you know, what I thought was working. And and as I as the longer I lived in Belgrave, the better I was becoming. 
um, the coincidence was was extreme to me because I in my journal I was just running similar courses every single week and without trying my times were coming down I was just getting stronger and stronger um, and riding same courses each Wednesday I'd, I'd say two minutes faster you know I wasn't trying to kill myself but um, but I had no data except for the time uh, but I you're did, doing the exact same exact loop, same loops yeah because that had the most hills yeah um, and and other days I was doing easy rides I'm just talking about the days where I was meant to be riding and running hard um, so so that was kind of exciting I knew from from the times that I was doing without any other data I knew the times and of course there's wind and rain and and temperature that would affect those results but uh, but generally I could see that I was improving from you know six months earlier I was doing now 15 minutes faster than I was doing six months ago so that's got to be good mm-hmm. uh, good signs so I couldn't wait for the races to start happening and and I'd set myself on Foster uh, 1988 for the Ironman so now I'd done Japan and I'd done I'd done Hawaii so I thought I was pretty 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 good uh, shape to to go okay that was the Australian Ironman Championships in Foster yes had you told anyone that your ambition was to win when you were not a no very way no. Yeah. no that was just between your mum and I um, oh, I think I told Peter Farmer that you know and he believed me he he said there's nothing stopping you here you're You've just got to believe in yourself. Um, Guys didn't rate you. It would have been embarrassing to say it. Yeah, no, I just wasn't even uh, mentioned, which is great. Underdog, that, mm. that's a great way to come into it. Mm. Um, I, wasn't a, I wasn't a factor or a consideration. And so at what point, how long out from the race did you start to believe that you would, you would go well at this race? Um, we did the world long course, no, sorry, the Australian long course two weeks prior, and we were just looking at that before. Um, and I actually ran super in that in that day, and and I knew then that I was I was I didn't win that race, um, but I came, you know, pretty good placing somewhere. I can't even remember. I'd have to look the, look up the book, but um, but yeah, that was a real confidence booster. And it's amazing, isn't it? You know, for those listening, how a shocking result can just deflate you so much, and then some good performances can you can just start to realise that you. Uh, you're a chance for whatever you want to do. So I really want to paint this picture of this of this six months, three months, one month leading into the Australian Championship. Because two weeks out, you suddenly found yourself in a really good position. But in the lead up to that, it was a single-minded goal. Yeah, and look, I'd done the Endurathon at Geelong. I think I came second. Um, so that was another result. So and the results were suddenly yeah. you know, 10th, 15th, 7th. Down yeah. To- yeah, so, you know... Don't forget, I had started this in 84, 85, so I had people say, oh, you just came from nowhere. And I'm saying, no, I had, since 84 to 88, I had four years of being nowhere. And you know, where have you come from? Well, I've done all of this planning to, to this, this week. And, and the confidence I got from Geelong, you know, I really thought I should have won that race. But, um, but yeah, just, just fell short a bit. But just... Just knowing that you know I can do this, and and it was all to do with execution, um, better execution, stronger at the back half of the ride and the run, um, and being a hold your nerve, um, not lose lose the plot, have a tough mental approach that you know I deserve to be here, and all those things that I tell my athletes now um, prior to their race is they're talking about doing a PB, and you deserve. To think that you can do a PB because all the training that you've done 
is telling me that that's possible. I won't tell you that if I don't think it's possible. Um, and being being patient in the race and being conservative almost, it's it's a big day. It's nine hours. And for some, it's 11, 12 hours. So, so you've got to actually think about the big picture all the time and, and, uh, and just concentrate on being in the moment. And in those days, it was listening to how your body's feeling, how you're coping. And, you know, the, the nutrition advice I had from Dr. Louise Burke, um, who's just one of the best nutritionalists now. Um, it's pioneering nutrition. Pioneering. And we did some testing at uh, Footscray Institute on, uh, it was an epic testing. I think I've told you this story. We did two weeks on a trainer, on an indoor trainer. Well, it wasn't a smart trainer. It was a, just one of those ones where you just had the roller underneath your back wheel. And it was 120 kilometers each Saturday, two Saturdays apart. One week you were on the nutrition, the other week you weren't. You're on a placebo, just a glucose sweet drink. And um, it was a competition. It was teams of, uh, it was 10 people. I think it was five, five teams of two. It was 10 of the best triathletes went and helped Louise um, with her nutrition experiment. So it was a study in, on nutrition and endurance. and and I, it's, when you're in a room with, you know, Greg Stewart, Greg, Greg Brown, um, well, all the top Rod Sodaro, all the, yeah. yeah, you know, Greg Stewart had come second in Hawaii, um, you know, just incredible athlete, um, Tim Bentley, I could rattle, rattle the names off and, uh, and, you know, you were in that room, you don't want to be, and they were taking muscle biopsies in the middle of it, blood tests, she was ahead of her time mm-hmm. and, and giving you the drink, but you didn't know which drink you were on. So, you know, I don't know, 80K into the ride, I'm riding too hard and fading badly and, you know, guys are riding really well and you kind of look around the room thinking, is he just fit or is the, <laughs> or is the nutrition helping yeah. him? And yeah. I had to get carried to the car. Yeah. Oh, it was a horrible experience. And then the next week I was thinking, well, I hope that wasn't the drink and now I'm going to perform worse because it was the worst experience of four hours on a bike that, I can never remember anyway. Of course, the story is just rode the house down and finished 20 minutes quicker. And her drink was a game changer. So that's what I used at, uh, at Costa. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, all those little things all contributed mm-hmm. and came together at the right time. And, uh, and you've got to be grateful for knowing all these people at, at the time, you know, the Peter Farmers and the Louises and, um, and uh, you know, going back, right back you know, to the start. So, um, so you're thinking of a lot of these things when you're preparing, you've got a lot of time to, to think about this race. It's for me, it's the big race. It's your A race. Yep. It's, it's what I'm, I'm, this is my destination race and not sure what I would have thought if I hadn't performed, but as it turned out, winning that was a, uh, it was a game changer. Um, you talked about having a tough mindset there. Anyone that knows you knows when you decide that you want to win something, you're ruthless in your attitude towards it. And you've told the story on the podcast actually of um, how much it was your focus and how when you were doing this course around the Danny Nongs and doing your big loop and when you'd finish the loop, you would visualize yourself finishing the Australian Ironman, mm-hmm. crossing the tape and putting it, and you'd actually put your hands in the air on the training run. Yeah, I had, uh, had bollards to stop motorbikes and bike riders from going into the trails of Sherbrooke Forest. And the bollards are still there. and and it could just fit your body through. And you, you know those bollards. Yeah, yeah. And because uh, you've run that loop many times. 
And when I came to that, at the end of that loop, that was fist pump, hands in the air. I had to go through the bollards to get that. <laughs> so that was, you know, an excuse. If anybody was looking at me going, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> so I have to get through the bollards. Yeah. Uh, but, but that was me visualizing coming down that finish straight. And, and I remember coming down that finish straight thinking about um, that, that training session that I did repeatedly where I absolutely deserved in my mind to be coming down the finish straight at, at Foster Tongue Curry that day, um, knowing that all the work I'd done, you know, and I had I had a lead where I could come across the finish line and, you know. How did how did the race pan out from from the start? Um, yeah, look, I was in good swimming form. Um, so I wasn't that far back behind a really good swimmer called Rick Pallister, um, who was a gun swimmer and he was off on the bike miles ahead of everybody. And I I don't remember many other people around me at transition, but I was head down to try and catch him. And I caught him, I don't know how into the, far into the race, but I think it wasn't more than 30 or 40K into the race. And from that point on, I was in front. Um, and I knew there was so many good athletes behind me. And I just... They could have been coming. <laughs> they were coming. I knew that because we had out and back and I could see, I could sort of see where they were. Um, and I was always thinking of, you know, in terms of data, where are they, how far? And I was looking at my watch to see how far they were at the different variations of the turns. And it was a really dead road, suited me down the ground, undulating, you know, just like the back of the Nongs, just crappy roads. And and I knew the strength I had. And all I had to do was maintain that lead from these guys, no matter how hard they were riding, as long as I stayed ahead. Um, Do you have any low points on the bike that you remember? Uh, I don't remember that. I remember the run more so. Um, you probably don't remember the low parts when you win a race. Do you? Yeah, no, it was all. It's all seemed pretty fine actually. But uh, <laughs> but but in the bike, I knew that I had to concentrate on my nutrition because I had that experience in the lab, and and that was a key thing. I definitely felt I had an advantage if I could keep myself from going hunger flat. You know, I could maintain whatever pace that I well, I was giving myself, and and you know. That's hard to do when you, you know you've you've only got two drink bottles and you know were, we didn't have I don't think I don't think we had um, stations where you could stop and get uh, special needs bags. Mm. So I did whatever I carried I had, mm. um, and it was good enough to get me through. So so I remember coming off the bike and just really trying to find out from anybody how far behind they were, um, which is a really bad way to think. You need to be thinking about what you're doing next. Um, reasonable in a marathon though to it is yeah just know. i was asking the question because i wanted to know whether i needed to be right at the top of my range for my running or whether i could ease into it that was kind of what i was asking if they were right there i knew that i was going to be under the pump so i didn't want to run too hard early um and so there you know their experiences that i pass on now to, to athletes is having knowledge about what's happening is really crucial in making good decisions um so I knew the guy I'd trained with, Rod Sodaro, I'd trained with him a lot. He was a better runner than I was. And it he was second? It turns out he was second off the bike. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. I think I only had two or three minute lead. And, and anybody would think, well, that's a fair way. But, uh, you know, we're both competent runners, but he's a better runner in training. Um, but I wasn't sure how he hard he'd ridden. He was a very average swimmer, so he must get second off the bike. He's come through the whole field. So he, I thought he must have ridden the house down. But he's got to be tired. So maybe he's not going to run as well. 
but we'd done lots of long, hard rides and runs off the bike where he dropped me. Mm. Um, remember distinctly being dropped by him many times. And uh, so I thought, geez, I'm under pressure here and this is going to really test me. Um, so just hold my nerve, um, run the pace that I know I can sustain and, and try not to, because we passed each other and I tried to look like I was relaxed and, and, and he was like pumped, super aggressive and mm. yeah, Jared, you know, you're going well, you know, really encouraging. And I was thinking, geez, he's on, he's on fire. And I was thinking, I don't feel, I don't feel that good. I don't feel like he looks, looks yeah. um, but I put on a brave face as we went past and he high-fived me and, um, I was just trying to check how far up behind he was and, yeah. um, and yeah, just really concentrating on him too much and then snapped out of that and started concentrating on, you know, stop thinking about him, run your race. And, and then, you know, they had kilometer marking. So I was able to time, you know, from yep. my limited watch that I had, um, that I was still running the same pace and, you know, then starting to think about all the training sessions that I'd ever done. Um, including 400 runs around Sherbrooke that was was going to be the difference right now and and now is the time to to really think positively about how well prepared I am and he's going to have to run the house down to catch me um, because I'm strong I'm super strong and out the back of that course was a couple of hills and I thought you know on the flats I was running well but as soon as I got to the hill I just felt like I was home. Mm. And did you pass him again? Yep. Yeah. We did, yep. And and he I think the next time he said, You got this, you know, this, I can't get you. He conceded. Yeah. And it was something like that in a really good way, you know. He actually went on to win two years later, which I was so wrapped for. Um but, you know, his time was gonna come. But it was it was at that, that point, I thought, he's conceded. That's interesting because I'm still, I'm still, you know, possible blow up, blow up, yeah. you know. Um, but it was only about 5K to the finish, I think. I can't remember the details, but. Do you remember at the point where you knew you'd won it? Um, not until I thought one or two K to go. And I still didn't know where he was. Um, he could have told me that he's conceded and he was, that was his tactic. I don't know. I, you know, you just don't know what people are, are thinking and he could have improved so there was no information to tell you what was going on um and how was it to come down that straight oh i have to yeah it gets me emotional even now so you just think about all of the things you've ever done um since you were a, a little boy almost um so i do get emotional on these things but um but it was it was one of those days where you know you just couldn't be more proud of of what you've achieved and stop. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And I suppose, you know, thinking about my my dad and um you shouldn't get emotional like this about something that's forty years ago, but but that's how much it meant to me. <laughs> and I think finishing and seeing Andy at the finish line and Liam had been born and he was in the pusher. And that first dream of of winning an Australian title. So that was 
you know, that was kind of so special. Um, but it was just not about me. It was, it was everybody involved who had guided me, who had – and every time I saw another person, like Peter Farmer was there. Mm. It was um, – yeah, this sounds terrible. I, I don't even know whether this should be on. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree. And that's why I, I pushed you on it, even though I know, you, I know it, it would bring out this reaction because – Yeah, but just – Hugging your mum and um and hugging Liam and and hearing the announcer saying you, you know you're the Australian Ironman champion and it's something that it's it's meant it's meant everything to me and and it's not it's not the end of or the the best thing that's ever happened to me but it's one of those things that that um I suppose because you work so hard at it and and you've gone on a journey yourself with a whole group of people who are in your corner. And I think I just I just was so wrapped for everybody involved that they they were a part of that that journey and even, you know, Peter Lamont from the bike shop and, you know, the guys I've mentioned all the way through from Jeff Watt and, and Dad, of course. But um but it was it was one of those things I'll just never forget and uh, it's it makes it worthwhile, and whether you win or lose, the satisfaction. You know, the next year I lined up again as favourite, of course, and and you know you brought back to earth very quickly. Um, <laughs> you know, I got second, and I was distraught, um, and the feeling was was so different. And and Tony Sattler, who'd come seventh in Hawaii, he was no slouch, and to be beaten by him was, you know. So the emotion of that year and then knowing that I'd arrived and ticked off one of my, my goals was was fantastic and and I was super confident from that point on um, about any race that I went into and and of course going from there to I think the Australian Biathlon, which is a duathlon, was on next and that was a ridiculous event. Ten K run, eighty K ride and ten K run for a duathlon, which now they do five twenty five. Mm. Um and to win the Australian duathlon title, literally straight after that, you know, it's the uh, same same triathletes competing. Yeah, exactly yeah. the same. And 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 all of a sudden, I, you know, people were asking me what training I was doing, whereas I was asking everybody else mm. for the previous two years. And that was a real a real interesting feeling I had. Um, I, I was quite shocked at how people rated me from not rating me. Um, just by winning one race, it was one big race. Yeah. yeah, and 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 I gained a lot of confidence from the methods that I had instilled in myself. And I had been coaching people, for, you know, for free for years, um, and learnt so much about um, coaching others. And and coaching myself was quite difficult. Um, um, so so there were so many positives that came out of that for the next sort of two years. Um, that was, you know, two goals ticked off. Mm. I was a professional triathlete and I won a national title. And people have been asking you how to train ever since <laughs> for the next 30 yeah, years. Yeah, and that, that actually gave me confidence too because when you do something well, you believe in yourself, don't you? Um, you just go, well, it worked for me. Why wouldn't it work for other people? And, and that's the fun part for me is is knowing all the mistakes I made in my training 
uh, in my preparation on race day. You know, you just learn so much from stuffing things up that you become, when it comes together, that's what gets you emotional. It's because there's so many things contributing to it that you've, you've done so wrong and all of a sudden you've done it all right on the one day. And, and I suppose I, I don't want to be boasting, but I, I pride myself in performing when it counts. And, and I, I was just so wrapped it on the day that I actually, it's a mental, it's a big mental thing, you know, I'm putting so much pressure on myself to perform here because this is one of my big goals. No one rates me and I, I performed when it counted um, and backed myself and hung tough when I was under pressure. And so I learned a lot about success and a lot of, learned a lot about f- failure, but, but that day really, you know, it, it, Gave me confidence as a person to believe in myself, and if I can instill that in others that I'm coaching, um, if you do the work, do the preparation, and you're ready and prepared, as long as you execute, you will actually you'll actually get the result you want. It might not happen every time, but there will be a day where it all comes together. Might take five years. But. Yeah, well, that's about the length of time it took. Technically, it took you know your whole life, like you're saying, yeah. every moment. Yep. yep. And I know I know why you don't like talking about it, and I know that it um to get emotional about a performance like a sport performance can seem trivial. Oh, and that's what I'm. Uh, that's why I don't like talking about it because it is so insignificant in the scheme of the world, and I end up emotional, and it's just like, well, why? Why are you emotional about that? Um, and I, and I just totally disagree with that. Uh, notion that it's uh, insignificant because I just think we've spoken about this before on the podcast, but I just think sport is this special thing where um, you don't have to worry about a lot of the problems in the world because there are mm. a lot of problems in the world that um, take up our our mm. time and attention and our and our energy. And when you watch the Olympics, you get to see all these mm. miraculous stories that get everyone emotional. You you'll be watching an athlete that you have yeah absolutely don't know from a different country and. People will tear up watching their story because of what it took to get there. And um, I just think that is the power of sports stories and the power of sport in general. And like you've said, whether you've done this to become Australian champion or whether any athlete that has set a hard goal, like a PB or a certain performance, that has put the same amount of pressure on themselves, because whether it's going for the Australian title or not, we put out the same pressure on ourselves. Mm. And then to mm. achieve it has felt the exact same feeling. Mm. And mm. I would probably say to you, it was a different extent because that's how much you wanted to win. Um, mm. it show how emotional you get now shows how badly you wanted to win. Um, I don't think you could have achieved that result without wanting it that badly. Mm. Um, it's funny when I had all those losses, and there were out of a hundred, there were ninety-eight losses and two victories. I was not emotional when I lost. I was so determined to improve, so keen to what do I need to do to get this victory. What am I doing wrong? It was, it was study, analyze, think about it, determination, no emotion. And yet when I started winning, my emotion was not happy. It was always tears, mm. you know, every time. Every time I did something and it, you know, it just became emotional. Um, so my, my demeanor between winning and losing was quite contrasting. Yeah. And I never cried when I lost. Yeah, yeah. That was the last thing I was ever thought about. I cried when I won. Yeah. So that's, you're, that's you're, a, I will say, knowing 
knowing you in my lifetime, you've always been a terrific loser on the outside, uh, but I mm. know how much it mm. eats you on the inside. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I still remember, and I, I don't want to tell this story because I'll end up starting crying again, but, uh, <laughs> but Kathy, Kathy Watt's mum, Kathleen Watt, um, and Jeff Watt died tragically. Um, he died from hypothermia on a training run at Mount Erica, 1967. I can still remember um, about that period. Um, somewhere around there, 68, 69, something like that. Um, and he was an absolute gun runner and a really competent orienteer. For those who don't know what that is, that's running with a compass and you have to get checkpoints in the bush. So he, he is a, an experienced endurance athlete. And he went for training run in September up at Mount Erica and the weather is quite fluctuating. So it's not, it's not a big mountain. But there was a race on that weekend. He was doing his preparation. That's the sort of person he was, going, check the course. Anyway, it snowed when he was up there. He had a shirt and a T-shirt on, uh, short, shorts and a T-shirt on. And, and he didn't come home. And they sent the search party out. It's, it was snowing up there. We couldn't understand where he was, what, was, what had happened to him. He knows everything about running and orienteering. Anyway, they found him in, in the snow, 10 metres off the track, Tracks were all gone because the snow had covered the tracks up and he just got hypothermia and died. Mm. It was an absolute horrible story. Um, and I remember winning the, the National 800 metres as a 10-year-old and giving my medal to his wife. Mm. And, and that meant more to me about who he was and what he'd done for me. And I told you, I told you this would happen. But, but you know, that was one of the best things I could do was to give my gold medal that I'd worked so hard for as an eight, nine, ten year old <laughs> to her. And you know, I can remember running around the yards, and she's going, "No, I can't take that off you." And I'm saying, you, you, <laughs> "Yes, you have to." And uh, you know, and that sticks in my mind as well. And that's that is what it means to me as as an athlete um and that's how passionate i am about you know seeing you succeed seeing my children succeed seeing my athletes succeed it, it means equally as much and i've been on the phone to guys who've who've done pbs and and i'm in tears yeah. with them yeah. and uh, it's I, I'm very bad with holding my emotions, but <laughs> but even you know some some stuff that you guys have done graduating, you know you couldn't be prouder. It's and it's just the trait that I have. I just start crying. <laughs> but but I wanted to tell that story because it's 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 it doesn't just happen by yourself. You have to have you have to have help in everything you do. You have to surround yourself with the right people. Who are in your corner, and and there's so many genuine people out there who who are not in it for themselves. They're not trying to get something out of, you know, that they just genuinely care about others, and and you know, they're the people you need to to put yourself around. And um, and everybody's got their close circle of friends, and you want to surround yourself with like-minded people, and not waste any seconds with people who drag you back and hold you down. Um, and they're the things that I think I learnt right from an early age from my dad was he just was a sponge and, and he just could not tolerate people who were negative. 
and and he just wanted to associate with with people who are successful mm. and well, it doesn't matter whether it was work or or relationships or um or sport and and that's kind of how I've tried to to be you know and that journey still goes now um I'm passionate about who we have in our group and and I'm very selective now about who we let in because I just want like-minded people. I don't want to waste time with people who are not motivated like I am, who aren't, who aren't determined and who aren't passionate and they maybe just want to say they've got a coach. I don't want to coach those people. I want to, I want to coach people who are thinking like me. And I'll, I'll put a caveat on that for anyone listening that um, that's, that's a very high bar to hit. So they're not going to, I don't think anyone's going to be as motivated as you. <laughs> um, they don't have to be um, no, that level. You know what I mean? The, uh, yeah, the, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> you want motivated athletes. I don't but, mean they aspire to be a professional <laughs> triathlete yeah, or give or up win, everything for the sport or, or win or, national titles yeah, yeah. Um, or represent their country. You want them to better themselves. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I mean, coming full circle, the, you know, the story started with you, you know, Papa, who your dad, my Papa, um, who's not alive anymore, you know, took those sessions in the 60s and he was at every race he could be at for you. Mm. And I think as soon as you if, cross the line and, and mum was there and Papa's there, I think that's what, mm. um, what makes it so special um, when you combine the whole story of how, how you actually got there. And you've said your gratitudes for mum multiple times on this podcast and still 30 years later, you still say how she's still supportive and I think mm. um, every single athlete listening knows that that you can't do it without your support crew or mm. yeah and look I, that's where I struggle with this podcast is it's it's all about me which I'm, I'm not comfortable <laughs> with know that, um, yeah. and and I'm and I agreed to do it because I hope that I could get some messages across about it's not all about you um, it's about the journey you're on with the people you've chosen to be with and and that's you know, you make good decisions with the people you surround yourself with and you make some shockers and you, you get into trouble with the wrong people. And I was like that as a young guy, had some, had some dodgy mates and, and quickly learned from, you know, getting into trouble, you know, that, that that's, they're not the people and it's, it's, a, it's not what I, who I am or what I want to be. And so I want, I'm happy to talk about things that, are, that if I can give advice to some of the young people and we do we coach you know coach zach who's 19 um you know you're 29 there's so many things that you know you're going through the period that i did and i made so many mistakes and you and i've talked about this um uh, you've got to want to do it yourself you've got to have your own, own inner drive it can't be someone else wanting you to do things and i'm talking to the general athlete now um you you can achieve whatever you want if as long as you put the time in um and and it's what you want. Um, if you're doing it because the the reasons aren't correct, you will not be successful. You always say that to an athlete that um, is, you know, that asks to sign up, and you um, you know, ask them a few kind of questions to see where they're at, and you ask them, well, why do you want to achieve this goal? And if the reason's not a good enough reason, you will call them out on it. Mm. So that's yep. not a very, it's either not a healthy reason to do it, or yep. that's not a true reason to do it. Yeah. And I've been uh, sucked in a little bit from people over the journey that talk the talk, um, and I've mis I've misjudged people that I thought this won't last, and they've been incredible. Mm. Um, I've heard lots of people who are really confident who don't last. So I've had I've had mm. the whole spectrum, um, and so I can't judge people 
until I see their performances. And that's what I've learned. Whatever people say or, or however they act is irrelevant when it comes down to what they do. That, that says everything. I do want to finish off um, a career. And we're, do, we're going to do two parts to this episode uh, because we do want to tell the whole story, but we want to finish your career as a professional triathlete because uh, it has some unbelievable lessons, especially from a coaching perspective. And so you, after becoming Australian champion, you had a really good year. You won the Australian duathlon. You had a great result at uh, the reunion in yep, France. In France yep. Yep, you went overseas. And With competed. another team. Yep. Um, and that was against, uh, it was Northern Hemisphere, Hemisphere versus Southern Hemisphere. That was the competition. Um, and it was... Uh, it was a 3K swim, 130K ride, and a 30-something K run, and we climbed 1,000 metres on the bike, and it was 36 degrees at sea level and 12 degrees <laughs> at, at the top of the hill. And, and you know, the, the Northern Hemisphere had Scott Tinley, Scott Molina, uh, Mark Allen. They, they had the best athletes of that generation. We had Greg Stewart who'd come second mm-hmm. and, you know, the rest of us who were nowhere near the, the level of them. Um, not quite because you were you were um, you had yourself in good form. You had the confidence now. You, mm. you were a good racer, and you went to Kona again. Um, this time to race, and this time to do well. And again, it was an internal goal to do really well. Um, but uh, you would say you were. I mean, let's just tell the story. You you, you raced well. You swam well. Um, you were at the front of the pack in Kona yep. on the bike. Um, Things were going to according to plan. Yeah, definitely. I had a goal of uh, that was not one of the, my my four goals was, but I just wanted to be successful at that race. I I, just, I didn't set a goal on that. I I just thought I'll just see what I can do here. Um, for some reason, I I don't know whether I thought that it wasn't as special as the other goals that I'd set. You know, winning an Australian title and representing your country. Um, it was just a race. Um, but it was a big race. It was the world title Ironman. Anyway, won't dwell on that too much, but, but I certainly, uh, because it was a no wetsuit swim, um, that helped me a little bit. Um, and I, and I wasn't that far behind. I think I swam 52. I think I wrote in that book, Mm. 52. So I was quite happy and I got out really high up in the field and didn't have to ride too hard. And we've talked about Rod Sodaro, uh, who was the guy chasing me at at uh, Foster, at the Australian title, and he'd never caught me on any any event uh, until the run. So I'd been run down by him in many races. You better bike rider. He never caught me on the bike. Um, and he was an in- incredibly good bike rider as well. But he was swimming. He, I had such a leader on him in the swim. We were riding similar. So he wasn't ever going to you know, catch me on the bike. And three quarters of the way around Kona, he comes past me, and it shocked me. I was, it threw me. And he yelled out as he does with his confidence, come on, Jared, let's, let's go. And I did. I picked up my pace. I f- followed him. I think we were fourth or fifth when we got off the bike, six, something like that, somewhere around there. This is at Kona. Yeah, this is the elite. The elite, elite. Yeah. yep. And there's only Mark Allen and Dave Scott ahead of us and, yeah. and Scott Tinley, the legends of the sport. and. And a few others, Mike Pig, I think, and and I got off the bike, and Rod sat down, and he's going, "Now you know you just got to finish it off." And I'm saying, "Well, what are you doing?" He said, "Oh, I'm not running. I'm I'm I've got an Achilles Achilles injury, and I'm not running." And I I had changed my race plan, and I have told this story before. 
And this is on the biggest stage. And I thought, you're an idiot. What have you just done to myself? Rod wasn't the idiot. I was the idiot. And I'd raced his race, not knowing that he wasn't going to run. And so it put me in an unbelievable position. <laughs> um, but I started running and thought, this is not good. I'm in a bit of trouble here. It's hot. I'm, I'm struggling. But I just did the same thing, thought about all the training, the mindset, went through the process. Um, and the course is quite different. You run from – the course is not the same now as it was then. Um, but you run from one end of the island through the finish area and then out to the lava fields. And now you don't do that. Um, so we, we, I think we might have ran 8K or something to the finish area and we go past all the family and that was great. Um, and I was quite, quite in control, running well, holding my place. And then we get out into the lava fields, you go up the hill. Um, and, and then the Wild World of Sports uh, camera crew came alongside of me and I remembered this vividly, and I've been shown the video a few times from one of Richard Harvey sent it to me regularly. He's a travelo athlete. Yes, and uh, he's footage. always digging up this video. Um, what were you thinking, Jared? <laughs> and uh, and the guy's going, oh, I think I think he said you're in seventh place overall. How are you going? And um, I think I was in a dream. I I think I was starting to suffer from from. Uh, dehydration and you don't even look at the camera you don't even move your head actually you mm. in the clip and all i say is how far behind's the next guy and that's the wrong mindset you know we've still got a fair way to go um but i i kept going and um kept my form kept running okay tried to get as much drinks into me as possible but i think i was definitely dehydrating and because we not really trained properly in the heat from our our winter um uh, i think it was slowly catching up on me and we we got to about i think 38 39k mark i was still in the same position i hadn't lost any spots um and uh leading australian um thinking you know just got to get to the finish i'm not going to win i'm not going to beat dave scott or mark allen but i'm pretty damn happy with where i am and and just hold it together but we went down coming into town for those who've been to kona it's a long downhill that's the one you go out, mm. out into the lava fields. And, and all of a sudden, my quad started to, to cramp up. And I think there's 2K to go. And I'm still seventh. And got onto the flat. So it goes down the hill, flat, and you go a little bit of a loop. And then you come into a Leahy Drive. And I was literally 1,500 meters from a Leahy Drive. And it was like the, uh, the, the girl we talked about um, crawling across mm. the line. Um, oh, my left leg just cramped up. Um, Calf, quad, hamstring, adductor, my glutes, hip, and then all of a sudden it was in my right side, and I, I couldn't put my foot down. I, I couldn't straighten my leg. I was in agony from. I just couldn't straighten my my foot. I couldn't I couldn't move. Mm. Um, I was on the side of the road. I was trying to stretch. People were giving me drinks. I was just doing anything I could to progress. And at that stage, I I, I thought I can't finish. Mm. I'm stuck. Yeah, I can't actually move. And I could see people passing me, um, and a couple of Australians went past me. I think Greg Welsh and who ended up winning Hawaii, Tim Bentley, um, and they were the two Aussies who went past me. And and I, I wasn't counting places; I just knew that people were passing me, and uh, it was devastating. Um, yeah, I was just distraught, um, but continued on somehow. Got 
sorted the cramps away and then came across the line. Someone told me I was 23rd. Um, and as disappointing as it was, I was proud of myself to get to the finish. And oh, the next two hours in the tent, <laughs> I was like screaming and yelling. I just couldn't get rid of cramp. It was in my chest, it was in my back. And, you know, I was on a drip and, you know, eventually it's, it subsided. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, I was beyond, I'd gone beyond where I could possibly have thought I could ever go. And, um, and looking back, I thought, geez, I had a pretty tough mindset there because I was, I was in trouble. Um, I was in trouble a long way before then. Um, but, but I kept running and, uh, absolutely the strength of, of my heel training. Mm. Um, but it was just, uh, bad execution. Racing someone else's race, not getting enough nutrition, not training in the heat. I could just keep listing the things that the mistakes I made in that race. Um, but there was a lot of positives, you know, and I still, still was happy with, with what I'd done. But, it, but I thought next year I'm, I'm, I'm going to nail this. This is, this is going to be my event. And I thought I could win that race. Um, but it wasn't to be. I never went back. So, so looking back, it was kind of one of those un, you know, unfinished um, events, but that's, that's what happens. And it um, created, for those that know Travelo, philosophy is it created some of the strongest Travelo training principles. I mean, execution now is 50% of the game plan with Travelo, and it yep. probably stems from results like that. Yeah, definitely riding too hard caused my dehydration, which yeah. caused my cramp, mm. riding someone else's race. Mm. And um, you, you always say... Um, it's not a the race isn't a, a thirty nine kilometer marathon or forty. It's a forty two kilometer. Yeah, and, and it's not a two race of not a two leg event. It's yeah, a three. Yeah, you know, it's three sports, which is so harsh to say because the result is nothing to, <laughs> to, yeah. to, to um, blink yeah. at. And it was a great lesson. Yeah. A, it was a lesson that I never would forget. Mm. Which um, is why when you say it to athletes, you're saying it with conviction because I've done it. Yeah, in the biggest stage, yeah. and you know, I've, you know, we've seen a lot of. You know, I watched uh, Australian story the other night. Yana Pittman's story, fantastic story. What an athlete, mm. what a maligned athlete, but what a class class athlete, world champion. But she never won the Olympics for you know lots of reasons why. She, mm. But she won two world titles as a four hundred meter hurdler. She's now a doctor. You know, she's an incredible person. Mm. Six kids. Um, but you know, she she said that you know that Olympic gold medal was it still haunts her mm. even to this day. So. Examples of, you know, things sometimes don't happen the, the way you want it. You had one final goal, though, to try and tick off before you finished your career, and that was to represent Australia. Yep, and, and I really changed my whole mindset because you couldn't do it in any, you know, there was no Olympics, there was no Commonwealth Games, and all of a sudden it became part of the Commonwealth Games in 1990. Um, uh, March, I think it was, 1990, something like that. And I thought, I'm doing all this Ironman stuff. Can I do an Olympic distance as fast as, you know, I sh to get selected for Australia? That was my next goal. Mm. So um, I'd done uh, Kona, then I went back and did Foster again, got second. And after that, I said, that's it. I'm not doing any more. Um, uh, I'm, going, yep. I'm going to concentrate um, on... And I thought, no, I'll, 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 just, I'll just do this and this could be the, the end because um, we had Liam and Matt was due to be born. 
Um, I'm desperate to get selected for Australia. It's the last goal. Can I hang on uh, to be a professional athlete for another six months after Kona in 1989? I sort of had the Ironman win. I'd got second again. I'd done well at Kona. So even though I thought that I could do Kona again in 1990, um, I just, the Commonwealth Games, when it became available, that was a game changer. So I kind of lost focus with the Ironman. Mm. I was just going, oh, this is my chance to tick that final box, represent Australia, and I'm a chance here. So I changed my training to start to go back to a lot of the, the speed and intensity stuff and still kept doing the strength stuff, did more hill repeats like intervals, um, which we do a lot of now, as you know. Um, and we used to do that. It's at Sherbrooke. There's a, there's a hill packet track we used to do, uh, some intervals up that. Uh, he'll repeat intervals and um, and really, you know, focused on doing, I think it was a five-race series and they, they selected, I think they selected six male and female athletes to represent Australia in the Commonwealth Games for the very first time at Auckland in 1990. And, and I, had to, I had to compete in all these races all over. There was one in Albany in WA. There was one in Noosa. There was one in Geelong. Uh, I think there was one in Wollongong and Adelaide. There might have been a race. Um, so... I was up against it, and some, we had some really good athletes by this stage. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a big change for me, focusing my training differently. And to cut the story short, it was five epic races that there's a story in every single one of them. And I and I didn't win any of them, but I got accumulation of consistency. I based my 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 goal was if I can be consistent and be in the top five or six because they're taking six. If I'm coming first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth in any of these races, it's on a point system, they can't ignore me. Mm. And I'd been, you know, this is the first time I'm back in subjective selection. Um, and, and, you know, what happens if five of us are on the same points? You know, anyway, I didn't think about that. It was like, I've just got to perform. And, and so eventually, you know, it came down to, I remember Noosa, I, I tore my calf muscle with 1K to go. And still kept running, and, and that was an injury that stayed with me from, I think that was November 89. And then I had to run at Geelong. I was injured, and I, and I raced at Geelong and still got a really good place. I think it might have been fourth or fifth at Geelong. I was, might have been sixth at Noosa, um, running with a one leg for last K. If we wanted, we could just go to the book, and we would see all these. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and all my writing, um, yeah. uh, what was going on. and. Uh, Anyway, Geelong, they read out the team after that race and, and yeah, that brought tears to my eyes again um, and I, I just couldn't believe that I'd actually been selected and, it, you know, I had a ruined calf. It was <laughs> January and the race was, uh, it was February or March, the, the Commonwealth Games and I couldn't run. I could not walk to the car after that race. My calf was so, so torn. Did everything to get selected. Yep. Yeah, so, so... That was one of the prouder moments. Um, I'm and getting the the green and gold jersey, the running gear, the blazer. I've still got them. Um, they're they're in the back of the cupboard somewhere, yeah, but yeah. they come out fancy dress <laughs> <laughs> when you were little kids. <laughs> Used to wear them. Um, and that was uh, that was absolutely the most proud I think I was of anything that I'd done was finally ticking that um, represent your country and. And going to the Commonwealth Games was only a demonstration sport, so it wasn't a real sport in the Commonwealth Games, which was we found. So we weren't allowed to march at the start, mm. so it was 
it was a little bit disappointing, to be honest. Um, but we got to be there and, you know, I got to see Dick Estella and Monaghetti run the marathon and Lisa on Deakey win. I, I can't remember whether Monaghetti won or Deeks won. I, just we had legends. Yeah, yeah. And I watched Andrew Lloyd win the 5K, beating the Kenyans. I was there. at the. Yeah, it was mm. great. We did our triathlon first mm-hmm. and then I was able to stay. So it was a fantastic experience. Uh, unfortunately, I went there by myself. Your mum couldn't come, but... I was pinching myself saying, here I am, mm. I've, you know, I've, I've ticked off the last, last box and, and I was so injured after that and, and it was from my back and turns out later that, you know, I didn't know at the time I've got you know, a chronic back injury, which I've, I've had since then, um, but managed it fine. Mm. Um, and I just continued to get injured from that point on and um, ended up running some individual marathons after that when Matt was born in 1990 and you were born in 1992. And Georgia was born in 1994, so we had the four kids under five, um, and and I couldn't do triathlon at all. I, I finished as a professional. I ticked my boxes. Couldn't have been prouder. Look back, the only thing I probably wished I'd done better was Kona, mm. um, but I was determined to run a good marathon, and and that was my next goal. Got my car fixed um, for a period. Um, trained really well. Did a, you know three or four. Individual marathons without a 180k ride in front of them, <laughs> yep. um, which was so much fun, and and coaching my brother to do a you know break three hours, then break 248, then break 240. Mm. You know, just seeing me improve for 20 minutes was huge buzz. Um, so so yeah, it, it was the finish finish line was obvious and evident. There were no funding financial money in triathlon. So four kids, <laughs> no. So. You know, I we had your mum and and her grand her your grandparents and my mum your grandmother all helping with you know looking after it was it was time to time to get a real job as they say and um and that was pretty much after that after Commonwealth Games I never did a triathlon ever again and and I still haven't done a complete triathlon mm. since which is a bit bizarre um, as I love the sport and um, and only last year I did a I did an aqua bike, which was because I still can't run. And, you know, that injury stayed with me for mm-hmm. two, three decades. But, mm-hmm. but I had such fun doing the aqua bike and I just thought, well, I wish I could run. Um, so, yeah, it's been an interesting period. This is a question a bit off topic, but I'm curious to know your answer based on knowing your mindset. If you had the choice of not going that hard at the Com Games and um, not injuring your calf so bad that it ruined your next 30 years of running, would you, if you had your time again, would you not do it? Or was the goal so big you think you wouldn't be able to say no to No, it? I definitely wouldn't be able to say no. And, and I made mistakes with my injury. And that's one of the things I push people now is I didn't have the advice. There was no, you know, sports injury was not a regular job for people. You know, there was very few sports physicians, you know, who were, you know, you could count them on your hand mm. in Australia, how many would, were doing it full time. So I, did, I had no advice, you know. I, I thought that icing and resting and then returning to running was all I needed to do. And I just kept repeating that mistake. And then I'd last two runs, two weeks, two months, and then I'd tear it again. Then I'd tear the other leg because I was compensating. Mm. So I just kept making the rehab mistakes. But And that's why I'm so adamant now is do the ice, do the rest, but do the rehab. Mm. You know, make the leg stronger. The reason it's breaking down is because there's a weakness there mm. but i never treated the weakness and so looking back 
yes, doing those events and pushing myself so hard and causing that injury, if I had the right advice to say do the rehab, I, I would have got over it better. I would have been able to run forever. Um, but, but, you know, that's why I'm saying people, you know, don't, don't just expect to rest and then come back and then resume. And I say that all the time in our podcast. You know, start slow, build it up, 30 seconds on, 90 seconds off, you know. Again, you're one of the more conservative coaches I know, and that is, comes from those experiences. Yeah, those experiences that I don't want anybody to, to go through. And I don't want people to get to, my passion was running, and I, I can't do it. And, and it's so disappointing, and I love seeing everybody else running well. And, if, you know, the feeling you have, the euphoria you have when you're fast on your feet, and it's fun on the bike, but the bike's propelling you. But as a runner, you're in control of and it feels great to run fast. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so I don't regret it, but I just think if I had better advice um, in concentrating more on the rehab, um, I wouldn't be in this position. So I, I think the training and competing contributed, but the rehab prevented me from getting over it. Well, this has been part one of the story. Thank you very much for sharing it. The journey doesn't end here, though, uh, because you switch the determination and the mindset of an athlete to your coaching career, and the story has just as many epic twists and turns and lessons over the last 20 years as a coach. Uh, some incredible things have happened, uh, which we'll talk about on the next episode. Um, but I want to finish this episode with um, a gratitude because we do normally start the episodes with gratitude. And my gratitude is uh, I'm grateful for you sharing your story and for the story itself. Um, I think if I was ever going to get emotional, it would be now, but um, <laughs> for everything that it's taught me, um, and that is why I wanted to share it on this podcast because I have had countless um, tri athletes come up to me on a ride or just in person and say how inspired they are by you and how... Um, just watching you perform, even as a Masters athlete, um, is incredible to them and on a, on a Saturday bunch ride. Um, and so, yeah, while we admit that it's, you know, sport isn't everything and this story is not everything, um, I really wanted to tell it. And uh, because of how much it's influenced me, my brothers, my sister, our family, um, our extended family that all is into sport as well, um, our cousin Shauna that works in the business that we interviewed on the podcast 20 episodes ago. Um, that got me emotional. Mm. Um, yeah, that is my, that's my gratitude. And so that's the that gratitude for this episode and uh, this story. That's a fantastic gratitude. And look, I'm grateful for you putting me through this, although <laughs> it is tough to get through it. Um, but I'm grateful for the fact that I've still got a journal that I've kept um, since 1986. And just bringing it out, and it sits in the same spot in the cupboard I know where it is, and there's, there's actually two of them because I filled the first one up and had to go into the second one. Thank God your mum had put November 1987 because mm. that told us when yep. the new one started, when the old one finished because I, I was putting November but not the year. Yeah, yeah. So I had no idea what, you know, 100 pages of what year was it. Yeah. yeah. So all I could tell was where the races were. Yeah. Um, so that journal, that really taught me a lot, and I'm grateful for the – that's helped me understand how important data is because the data that I was collecting with no data to collect, it enabled me to be a better athlete because I was tracking everything. 
I was un- fully understanding where I was at at any particular minute. I'm grateful for the fact that I was so um, attention to detail about that and, you know, putting putting race number one, and you've seen there's, I don't know, there's 100 races with results, where it was, what the result was, and even at one point how much prize money I won next to that. Um, so it's, Which is the funniest part. because It is because <laughs> one race I came first, I won $100. <laughs> That was quite a big race. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I'm. I just feel that stuff like that to still have um, available. It really has made me understand how technology has made it so easy for us to have um, that much information that we we should be using it better. And it's really what what, what I was using with you know I haven't showed you this, but there's a few graphs at the back. I I drew graphs of my heart rate. <laughs> From the Training Peaks performance graph, <laughs> <laughs> I was manually doing a page of yeah. graphs and and trying to come up with some sort of you know standard thing that I could that I could plot on this graph. Yeah. Um, my running, I was on before, a graph before Microsoft Excel, and yes, I was putting week one time and putting the running dots on. Um, so I'm grateful that I kept that stuff because it it really taught me about attention to detail and preparation, and without that. I don't think I would have been nearly as good a competitor. I was looking for the extra stuff all the time. I don't know what other people were doing. I know Peter Farmer kept a journal. Mm-hmm. I think he might have been the one that, that told me yep. that I should need to do that. Um, and I, as usual, I would have gone, I guess. Not really. But but I still remember when you asked me that question about when we were on our honeymoon, I I was so focused that I was trying to think of what are the one percenters I need to do. And as a as a physio, Phil Bedlington, it just crossed my mind now. I know we should be finishing, but but what a person, what a human. Just saw that I had this back injury, um, and he got me through 86, 87, 88, 89, 90, um, just treating me every week. He treated me for free every week at Sandringham Sports Medicine, where the pool is there now. And he started in the little back room out the back, and I just hope he listens to this podcast because mm-hmm. – I did see him a few years ago. Um, There's another guy, Oscar Carlson, who was a good mate of Phil's as well. And Oscar still trains triathletes and Oscar must be 70-something. Mm. I saw a picture of him on Facebook down at the beach swimming a few months ago. Yeah. I just thought, that's fantastic. I yelled out to your mum, yeah. Oscar's still swimming. Yeah. Um, so people like that um, that, that you're yeah, on your journey with. And um, and I'm grateful for all of that. All of So, you know, it starts with the journal, but... But I'm I'm grateful the people I've met on this journey. I suppose that's that's the bigger picture is the the good people I've I've met and and become associated with and learnt from, and they've they've molded me into the way I think and the way I perform as an athlete, and you know as a person that's completely different. But but as an athlete, I couldn't have been happier with the people I surrounded myself with and who 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 went out of their way to help me. Um, and without that, I would never have achieved anything. And and that includes your mum working full time to support me and never questioning, um, never, never getting jealous, never, you know, complaining, and you know, just doing everything so that I could be successful. Unfortunately, someone came along and turned the journal into um, an online calendar called Training Peaks. And <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that makes things a lot easier. It to does, doesn't it? This has been a um, big episode and I've loved every second and there's more to come. Uh, yeah, like I said, I'm really excited for the next part of the episode uh, to talk about um, really how, tri- how, how Trivelo was born and um, out of coaching and uh, some of their stories uh, over this last period, which has developed into what it is now. And who would have thought, you know, 30 years later, there's a um, podcast that's going out to now over hundreds of thousands of people um, that they're hearing this uh, this journey. And yeah, I can't wait for the next episode. So. Fantastic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next one. Yeah.